Welcome to Open Banking Expo Unplugged, bringing you the brightest minds in open banking, open finance and beyond. Hi everyone and welcome to this next episode of Open Banking Expo Unplugged. I'm Adam Cox and I'll be steering the conversation for the next half an hour or so. Today's session is very timely indeed as we focus on the world of open finance and more specifically the impact this could have on the insurance sector. Many industry leaders continue to champion the move towards open finance, and today we welcome two voices from the insurance and insurtech space to talk us through their predictions for the future and why an open insurance industry might just be the way forward. This all comes in the wake of two key milestones in the last week for the broader fintech ecosystem. The first was the release of the Khalifa Fintech Review. This last week has been awash with industry reaction from the review, and I for one am delighted to see the investment and commitment from government to help keep fintech front and centre as we look to rebuild our economy. And secondly, UK Finance released its suggested open finance roadmap, which would see the continuation of open banking functions moved into a new service company as the final stages of the Competition and Markets Authority's implementation roadmap come to an end later this year. All interesting stuff indeed. So in this big news week, I'm delighted to be joined by Louise O'Shea, who is the Chief Executive Officer at Confuse.com and has been leading the charge there since 2017. Louise is also chair of Technations InsureTech Board. Um, welcome, Louise, and thanks for joining us. Great to be here. Thank you. And I'm equally delighted to be joined by Sean Milley, who runs Bright Blue Hair, a firm supporting innovation across the technology and scale up space. Sean is also a member of Techno- Technations InsureTech Board. Um, welcome to the show, Sean. Hi there. Thanks very much for having me. Great to have you. Uh, great to have you both on board. Um, both Sean and Louise have some big news of their own too, which we'll come on to shortly. So I'll be asking for a virtual drum roll a little later. Um, so first off, before we dive in, uh, what a week it's been. In terms of the Khalifa review, every LinkedIn post I read last week was commenting on this piece of work. Critically, though, it has open banking, open finance and broader open data initiatives front and centre. It notes that it sees uh, these key elements forming part of the UK economic recovery and having the power to change lives, which is music to my ears anyway. So. Whilst also the announcement from UK Finance on a new open finance roadmap will see a potential new plan for the open banking implementation entity, I'm sure there's still lots of hurdles to clear, guidance from the Competition and Markets Authority and timelines still to come, but interesting times nonetheless. So kicking off then, it's clear open finance is gathering pace and these announcements will only accelerate, which is exciting in equal measure. So, uh, Louise, excitingly participated in the Khalifa review, um, which is great for you and something that I've just learned. Um, so maybe to set the scene, uh, perhaps I'll pass the baton over to you um, and you can discuss uh, the Khalifa review in a bit more detail in terms of how it impacts the circles that uh, you represent in the insurance space. Thank you very much, Adam. That's right. It was a an amazing privilege to be part of the Khalifa review. It was extremely comprehensive. I was involved in one of the areas, which was the national connectivity piece, because I'm also a founder of FinTech Wales, which brings together all FinTechs in Wales as a membership organisation to grow the community, to raise awareness of what's happening in Wales and to grow the skills and talent pipeline. As anybody who's listening, I'm sure they've had a look at the Khalifa review. It is extremely comprehensive. There's a number of recommendations under each of the work streams. And sitting over all of that is the recommendation for a centre of for finance, innovation and technology, or CFIT, as we, we started to call it. Exciting times, that's for sure. And um, Sean, did you have anything else to, to add on that? Well, yeah, it's a, it's a huge report, obviously, um, Adam. Lots to unpack. And uh, 
particularly from the consumer outcome point of view as well, which um, experts will be other experts um, will be will be looking at. Yeah, I mean that that whole the whole thrust of the report, isn't it, is about making the UK its its crown doesn't slip. I mean, Khalifa actually uses that language in his forward, right, in terms of global leadership and financial services. So that's the thrust of where it's coming from. How do we keep that crown on our head um, nationally? Um, what was interesting for me with my um, obsession with consumer outcome um, and, and health resilience, uh, financial health resilience, was that, yeah, definitely those themes definitely made it into the mix too, but but very much on a secondary footing, which is probably what you'd expect given the, the remit of the report, right? But um, it was good to have it in there really explicitly across various of the work streams for the report, but also really tellingly for this conversation, the Coalition on Open Finance, you know, they talk about some, um, the language they use in the report is addresses as the kind of describing the why. That's how I interpret it anyway. And that's all about financial health in the UK for SMEs and consumers. That's the whole reason why there is going to be the Open Finance Coalition. So in terms of the things that we're talking about today, as well as the things that Louise and I independently, where they overlap, you know, together, obsess about stuff in financial services, that focus on open finance, I thought, and, and the direct connection with financial health was really interesting. Great stuff. No, thanks, Charlotte. It'd be interesting to see um, kind of the wheels in, in motion on that one. Um, and, and we'll continue to, I guess, set the scene a little more in terms of um, the industries that, um, that you both sit within and, and, and the circles that, uh, that, that you fly in. Um, Louise, I'll, I'll come back to you first, I guess, as the newly appointed chair of the InsureTech board, um, as operated by TechNation. Um, for those that may not know um, what that board is all about, um, perhaps you can just give us a brief descriptor um, and your role within that. That'd be great. Yes, of course. And I'm very pleased that Sean is one of our panel members there because she's absolutely fantastic and her contribution is is brilliant. So uh, the InsureTech board, what is it? It's a standing committee of the FinTech Delivery Panel. Uh, both of those initiatives are supported by the Treasury and they're powered by TechNation. And it's, they've basically been uh, established to enhance the UK's position as a global leader in the future of financial services. For the InsureTech Board, we have a number of goals and a number of initiatives targeting three areas. First of all, investment. So how do we grow monetary investment into the UK InsureTech sector? Partnerships, creating an environment that is conducive to UK InsureTech partnerships. And innovation, facilitating and enabling innovation across the sector. So we have those three key areas and then we strive to do a number of different things. One would be short term kind of quick ones. And the thing we're going to talk today about, which I'm very, very pleased about, is that the InsureTech board, we are looking at producing a report into open finance, which is specifically targeted at insurance and what InsureTechs and the opportunity for InsureTechs in this new world of open finance. Great stuff. And we'll, we'll come on to that report very shortly. Um, we'll be looking to dig out a drum roll of, uh, of some description. Um, Sean, I'll come to you as well. From the, the short time I've known you um, over the last six months or so, um, you're certainly well placed to sit on this board and I'm sure very excited to be part of it as well. Uh, yeah, always excited to be part of anything with this collaborative effort, Adam, <laughs> to be honest. And also as an independent person, you're know, running a very small business. And there are other parts to my life where I work with other people. But yeah, I mean, to be part of a bigger group with 
you know, people who are running large parts of financial services and insurance in the UK, which is one side of the membership um, with with what I would call established businesses like Confused.com, although, you know, obviously they, they come from a great innovation background as well. And then the, the, the guys and gals who are building the new businesses and, and using that, that tech enabled um, approach to taking problems and issues that we've had, but also emerging risks and creating new businesses out of that. I mean, it's great. It's very productive. Um, environment we, we meet three or four times a year so the work gets done um, by volunteers but also the amazing tech nation secretariat victoria ravi jemima and others um, who actually you know help us to get our ideas actually out into the world and done and the volunteer effort of the board members who you know attach themselves to particular projects um and and hopefully get things done that way and i think I think I'm um, certainly I was I was one of the of a new breed of people that joined around um, January, February last year. Adam mm -hmm. Louise is even newer and as the new um, the new chair. I think that the amount of energy that we now have and the clarity on what we can do and how we can do it. Um, is really amazing. A, a massive contrast, even the short time that I've been on the board between, you know, last year and this year. And God knows we need it, right? Uh, to take mm -hmm. advantage of all the opportunities, <laughs> but also the risks. Mm -hmm. No, certainly. It uh, sounds really powerful. Um, and uh, it's, it's great to, to have you both here discussing that. And as I say, we'll, we'll come on to the report that's, um, that will shortly uh, be being produced um, from Tech Nation a little later this year. Um, so, now let's move the conversation on in terms of the, the, the sole focus and, and the reasoning for, for, for why this podcast and how this podcast came together. Um, Louise, you recently published an article on LinkedIn calling for the insurance world to take open finance seriously. Um, immediately pricked up my ears. Um, you know, we're as a business um, and as a, I guess, an events and publishing organization, always looking at um, kind of innovation in the market and, and actually how we can take those core I guess, open banking principles and take them to new markets, which ultimately is what open finance is all about. But why now? Why, why, is, why is this a key driver for you looking at this? Um, and why, why is it so important um, for you to, to speak up um, on a social media platform? Um, because it got huge interest um, and, uh, and huge engagement. So it should be good to kind of get your further thoughts on that. We all understand and we all know, and it's not new news, that the pandemic is putting people and customers and everybody under significant financial pressure. And I really see that open finance is going to give customers greater control and greater clarity over their finances, which is going to be part of, we're all looking for solutions for the situation we're in. And I believe that that is going to be one of the solutions for the future. So tracking pension contributions, making sure you can see all of your different saving products, doing more automated switching all of this is going to help people save money so it's about a real customer need and solving real customer problems and i think when it comes to insurance there hasn't been as much conversation about this as possibly elsewhere and now don't get me wrong there are absolutely pockets of individuals and teams thinking about it and discussing it but this for me was about actually at the uh, CEO level at the board level, what do we understand about what this is going to do to our industry and how it's going to change our industry and make the lives of our customers better? And that for me was the, the impetus to say, I'm, I want to have a conversation about this. And I bet there's a lot more people out there who are more experienced and more knowledgeable and have lessons learned from open banking 
And actually, if I put my head above a parapet, can I attract some of those to me uh, to help me on my journey uh, to understanding it so that I can help all of Confuse.com's customers? That's fantastic. And kudos to you as well, um, as, as, as you kind of mentioned there. Um, there aren't too many um, CEOs that, uh, that come out and put their head above the parapet on, on, on items such as this, especially in something that's still very much in its infancy there. Um, you also mentioned, Louise, in the article around, um, you know, as an industry, kind of as an industry, we're not talking about it enough. Why do you think this is? Um, is it education, naivety? I mean, it would be a huge transformational change. So is there a fear of change there, do you think? Um, or what are your thoughts there? a mixture of those things and as I said yeah I, I don't want to take away from the people who are working really hard on this because I know I know they're there I, but I think at a at a board level it's something that isn't immediately demanding our attention you know, we're all very busy professionals and so and we all have our are in the middle of a unique situation uh, as a as a globe as an industry as, as individuals but open finance is also something that's that's complex it's not necessarily easy to imagine how it's going to work in practice, especially with existing business models and existing operating systems. And then if you add to that the fact that customers have been relatively slow to adopt um, new products in the open banking space, then it is easy to let this slip down the list of your priorities. And, and, and so that's, that's my take on it, but there may be other reasons. Yeah, that makes sense. Sean, perhaps I'll um, bring you in on the conversation here um, and then we can move on to the report. So what, what are your kind of thoughts and processes here in terms of an industry that um, perhaps aren't communicating about it enough? Um, I think we learned from open banking um, that to a certain extent there was a lack of education um, and a fear of change. Um, and, uh, you know, we're starting to see those adoption numbers in the purest sense when it comes to, you know, retail banking, for example, um, you know, they're, they're starting to increase month on month. Um, so but when we specifically look at open finance and coming into the insurance space, um, you know, what do you think the issues are right now in terms of, um, you know, it not being talked about enough? Well, I think Louise has covered, I'm giving the really invaluable board perspective, right, which is there are a whole list of things that are front and centre now, um, which have to be dealt with. Now, unfortunately, though, quite a few of those things also tie into problems that have been in the making for decades. And we, we talk about legacy systems. I know we talk about it in banking as well. But in insurance, for example, it's not just the hardware. It's the processes and systems that go behind it, particularly with regard to data management and Adam, data governance and risk and data quality. I mean, we know it's a massive issue across the insurance value chain, right? And every so often, and in fact, all the time, there are hordes of people working tirelessly all the time in insurance to try and fix loads of the issues that I've just referred to, you know, the legacy tech and, and the data management, data um, risk and governance issues. So I think, you know, we just have to recognize, actually, this, it is a complicated business running an insurance firm. Okay, and, and fine, people are, t are paid to do that, but, it would be dumb not to recognise that it's, I don't feel that it's necessarily about people turning their faces away from something they really ought to be taking notice of. There are, you know, rational choices being made about where finite resource and time is being spent. I suppose my point is just to say, you know, in those, in that rational decision making, there are some things that are in your control and there are some things that absolutely aren't, right? So, for instance, as a comparator, 
the rise and rise of ESG in insurance, seriously, it was, I couldn't get anyone to talk to me about it, Adam, six months ago, right? Mm -hmm. yep. It's all people want to talk about now in certain <laughs> areas, right? No, seriously, I mean, it's great, but it's, and a lot of that is legislative and regulatory pressure that you could not necessarily have predicted the volume and velocity of 12 months ago, right? So I think something like open finance, you know, again, the volume and velocity of change, if the FinTech review is basically setting out not just a wish list, but a real intent, I mean, there's lots of money, there's loads of public money and loads of activity that's been put forward um, in the FinTech review, in the Khalifa review, to make the kind of change that, as we said at the outset, this is all about competitiveness for financial services. This isn't about whether you believe in innovation or not. It's about whether you want to be here competitively as a financial services firm in the very near future. So I think, you know, the reason why are, why aren't people talking about it? Louise is right. You know, there's, there's a lot to do. There's a lot of stuff that you have to fix before you can start, you know, subscribing to API standards with it just being a, yeah, okay then, rather than, yes, we can do that. Lots and lots of practical issues. But I also think the narrative and the nature of the discourse, because it is very technical, Adam, as you know, because you live in this world, right? And you've lived in it for, for, for some time. We have to find a way to translate the technical, very important. And I'm not just talking about technological. I'm talking about things like digital ID and informed consent and privacy and all of those things that are wrapped up in data. You know, we have to find the better ways to be able to have those conversations with the human beings around the board table and heading up bits of business so that they don't have to work, they don't have to become a nerd like I've become a bit of a nerd on this, Adam, in order to try and make sense of it. And that's why I think, you know, that that perspective of Louise as, as the, the head of a business sat on a board, I can understand it and empathise with it. She's living it. I think bringing those two um, perspectives together gives us a chance to find the right way to have that conversation and to encourage people to move forward with education, yes, but also a bit of convening with use cases and, you know, the kind of stuff that I know we'll talk about um, with the with the Tech Nation report um, shortly. But I, th I hope that answers your question. But I think it's I don't think there's any excuse not to get hold of it, but I can see loads and loads of reasons why it hasn't been in the top three, particularly for 2020, 2021. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, certainly. I think um, you mentioned a couple of key terms there when you start looking at data privacy and digital identity, you know, two huge hurdles, um, you know, that's since 2017, when we looked at kind of the OBIE, when they came in and mandated by um, the CMA um, to, you know, produce this implementation roadmap, um, you know, two key hurdles for the retail banking sector to uh, to overcome. And um, so it's, uh, you know, it's no surprise that ultimately when we start looking at rolling that out across industries, um, you know, those same issues um, are going to um, are going to come up. And ultimately, then it's about sharing insight and knowledge uh, and opinion in order to kind of beat those hurdles. Um, totally. I, and Adam, just to say, don't you think it's really interesting and telling that there are a lot in that review as well as the Coalition for Digital ID? Because yes. without that, you can't actually build the rest of it. So, yeah. Mm -hmm.
No, no, hugely so. I, I completely agree. Um, you mentioned the report there. It's probably very timely for us to move on um, to, you know, for us to have a drum roll um, for this next bit and uh, look at, um, whilst it may not be necessarily exclusive, it's still a, a, a big deal. Um, Louise, you used um, the post as an opportunity to um, slightly highlight the launch of the reports um, that you're planning um, with the team there at Tech Nation, um, you know, informing the insurance sector around the progression of the world of open finance and the opportunities um this is probably a, a really good time to um in the podcast to go into a bit more detail um maybe some expected timelines if i can push you on those um and uh, and what you're hoping to achieve from the report um that will be really handy and, and certainly something that our listeners would like to like to hear absolutely and i also i want to ask your listeners to help us with the report Do, yeah well, go ahead because we're <laughs> We're open sourcing the open finance report into insurance. And by that, I mean, so uh, the InsureTech board are working hand in hand with Tech Nation, who are a fantastic team. We're commissioning a, a short report, and that's to increase the awareness of open finance, specifically open insurance across insurance and InsureTech as an industry. So it's about the education. It's about what can this mean for business? What can it mean for customers? And uh, it's going to cover a lot of different areas. You know, the simple, you know, what what is it? What's the status? Where it, can it take us? What does it mean for you? What does it mean for your customers? What are the different case studies? And what are the building blocks that we need to get right in order for it to be a success? So if you think you are the person to be writing this report for us, please get in touch. Uh, but also, we there's a job offer there by the there chancellor. Is, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but also, um, we're really looking for case studies. We're looking for examples from the open banking space: what went well, what what didn't go so well, to what you think this how this could influence. Maybe you're already working in the space and you've got a fantastic new idea. And so there's lots of different opportunity. We just want to gather in those ideas and and share them and just raise this up on the agenda. So please get in touch. I'm sure with this podcast, Adam, they can reach out to you and, and you can put them in touch with us. That's probably the best way. Yeah, exactly that. And um, I can put in some links and um, wherever needed to make sure that we give it the airtime that it, that it needs. Um, uh, m the next part, I, I want to go on to um, this next part of the podcast. Whose data is it anyway? And Sean, I'll come on, come, on, come on to you for that. Um, have you got anything else you wanted to add on the report um, from your perspective? Yeah, you know what? Um, the fintech credentials portfolio is very interesting to me. Um, so, but this is my understanding of it. Okay, so, and they're calling it inevitably an acronym, the FCP. So, as I read it, what this is, I mean, and it obviously fits into the international competitive piece, right? A way, a set of standards. They describe it as global indices that will that we can develop here in the UK that will allow our for want of a better word, homegrown um, businesses and international to, to expand internationally and do business internationally, removing some of those barriers around, well, who are you? Are you incorporated? You know, all of that good stuff. And a whole range of things have been put forward in the FinTech review, but broad brush. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I think I think that's very interesting on lots of levels, but specific to this kind of conversation and maybe also to the whose data is it anyway. Mm -hmm. Once you start pulling together indices, so one of them, for example, one of the examples that has been given in the nice little table in the report is FCA authorization. Yeah. So if that's if that's a part of this passport, part of this credential setting 
um, so that you don't have to, the, the process of being taken seriously as a fintech or an insure tech by people who don't know you internationally becomes accelerated and smooth and there's a proper exchange there. Okay, so what you're saying is that FCA authorization is not only a proof of your corporate identity, as it were, it's also a standard, isn't it? So when I look at the FCP, the idea of it, I understand the competitive and the commercial drivers there, and obviously it's very small. But what it makes me think about is who sets the standards, who sets the indices, and on what kind of dimensions? As I say, the review lists some dimensions there. But automatically, I think, where's consumer impact or consumer detriment or FOS complaints, the equivalent, right? I'm thinking about those businesses in operation, not just as a passport to funding and POCs and partnerships, but as businesses who represent people that are actually firms, products, offering services and cultures that are delivering outcome to customer. And I also think about the specifics around data, right? So, and what I and what I thought was this immediately, one of the thoughts that came to me was, if you set some you know, credential indices, metrics for data use, well, obviously, ICO stuff's got to be in there, GDPR stuff's got to be in there. But around digital ID and other things, you know, as this as these processes develop, you're also surely going to have more granular definitions of what good looks like from the point of view of data use, data governance, informed consent, all of those complex, tricky issues that are being worked out live now across banking and, fi and, and insurance and every aspect of finance. And could it be, Adam, that in setting an FCP set of indices for this, you're actually setting standards that some of the established firms themselves would have trouble reaching? Mm -hmm. I, I think it's really interesting. I think it will, if, you know, one outcome could be that the whole standard and codification of what good data risk and governance looks like in financial services gets hopefully raised but also very 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 detailed in a way that it really isn't coherently at the moment so sorry if that went on for a bit but i think i think there's a lot there to unpack no it's good it's, it's huge potential as you say and that certainly covered off that um section of the podcast um you know in terms of whose data is it anyway you're kind of doing my job for me which is always a good thing um so just moving it on slightly then um and I'll, again i'll go back to this uh, the, the LinkedIn post that Louise um, produced that got kind of so much engagement. Um, there was a few comments uh, around there. And it'd be interesting to kind of get your thoughts on allaying some fears, um, you know, specifically from the insurance space, looking at the costs involved and the complexities around implementation. Um, you know, I, I guess, is there a certain agreement there that, yes, that is something that ultimately needs to be considered, but it's for the, for the greater good to a certain extent. Um, so do you agree that there are some complexities around implementation and we, there's probably a more positive narrative that we need to, to produce when it comes to, you know, the costs involved in such an implementation? I think it's a, I think it's a great question. And I think we can learn a lot from what happened in open banking in terms of the costs and the pain if I say that, uh, in, mm -hmm. in getting there. I think many would agree. Many would agree <laughs> with the word pain, yeah. <laughs> the worry about the cost, because ultimately the cost will be passed on to the consumer. And then, therefore, we've got to make sure that whatever happens, as in whatever the opportunities that arise from it, outweigh, uh, in terms of benefits to those customers, outweigh the costs to those customers and that's a 
really tricky uh, piece to even be able to measure accurately, to be perfectly frank, because I think that's you know, how implement something and the costs they pass on that's going to be really really hard to actually get an accurate measurement on so I think the focus has got to be on what what the customer benefit is going to be and making sure that we can get to those benefits the if we were proper open collaborative conversation with all the parties involved so that we are not putting in place a system which is going to be impossible for for those companies to work with and therefore you know, not reap those rewards. It's interesting. I think we use the word uh, collaboration um, and very much uh, will be underpinned, um, one would imagine, from the report that comes out. Um, <clears throat> I think that's the expectation or that will be the expectation from other markets as we look at an open finance roadmap is, is actually, and we've mentioned it before, um, how do those sectors learn from, um, you know, what's happened previously, um, you know, in, in the open banking rollout, uh, not only here in the UK, but um, but more globally as well. So, yeah, I think there are some some threats on uh, that we need to be aware of there. Um, and, and and they were rightly flagged up on um, in terms of that, that, that conversation moving forward. Um, Okay, so let's look at um, kind of before I ask you for your hopes and dreams for the market, let's just focus on what those core opportunities are. Um, so if implemented properly, um, you know, you know, like I say, what are your key opportunities um, for the insurance space for both firms and consumers alike? Um, and Sean, I'd be kind of keen to get your thoughts, I guess, around, um, you know, how this might impact vulnerable customer profiles. Um, that term kind of gets thrown thrown around as um, quite a lot these days, and it gets quite a lot of column inches, and rightly so. But sometimes I think we can forget that vulnerable customers can be anyone at any time, at any period of their life, rather than just a subset of profiles at that one time um, or a moment in time. So um, two-part question. Uh, Louise, Pat, I'll come to you first. The key opportunities then um, specifically for firms and consumers alike um, in terms of looking at bringing um, kind of uh, looking at insurance and kind of open finance within that. Uh, and then, Sean, we'll pass the baton over to you uh, to potentially look at the vulnerable customers piece, if that's okay. I think it's, it's a really good point around vulnerable customers because also there there is a risk with open insurance in that better insurance risk assessment, does that actually potentially have a negative for some vulnerable customer segments? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. And mm-hmm. and that's uh, my, my principle has always been the more accurate you can do your risk assessment, then overall, that's the best thing for everybody overall. But it does it does have a concern for me um, with regards to vulnerable customers and and whether there will be examples where that's not the case where they they do end up penalised in some way. But for me, it's about um, reducing friction. There's a lot of friction. There's a lot of uh, lack of customer understanding around being able portability of their data, uh, their all their risk data, especially when we move into. I mean, if we just looked at. Uh, smart homes, smart uh, driving data, all of the kind of personal lines areas, health, health tech, all of that type of data by uh, providing a better way. If I'm sharing that with one insurer, how can I share that with another insurer? And taking taking that and it's the customer's data at the end of the day, enabling them to be able to share it. For me, that just presents uh, better opportunities for customers to move to the product provider of their choice. 
but yeah I do have that I do have that lingering concern but I think that will come in how things are implemented mm -hmm. perfect thanks Louise and, and Sean I'll bring you in um, on the conversation now as well if that's okay yeah sure um so yeah I'm glad that you um, pointed out Adam that vulnerability isn't just people who are non-standard by, by by virtue of living with a disability and usually people talked about seeing disability rather than unseen disability thank heavens we're now all having much better and more open conversations about mental health which is an issue for all humans right um you don't fortunately we don't have to wear a t-shirt if you don't want to you can now <laughs> um declaring how you're not standard right um we have a bit of a choice there um so this whole notion of vulnerability and and the fca recent review you know does talks about the fact we need different vocabulary we need different language because it it's still reinforcing and in insurance we have a real issue with non-standard right because non-standard for us means an opportunity to price more usually right or at all in the case of an emerging risk and it, it, it because of that whole mindset also around our data is our data adam because Mm -hmm. insurance has been a data-driven business since the very beginning right there's no sense in which insurance is a data amateur in terms of what you can do with it and the importance of quote owning it so all the key themes or some of the key themes that are coming out in today's world around is the customer's data i don't believe that is embodied in in the way that insurance firms operate i don't actually believe it's in, it really embodied in the way that banks operate to be completely frank i think financial services still has a massive mindset shift to do there and obviously that mindset shift is going to be accompanied by massive change in process and governance and standards so people who were living with lack of access and overpriced cover because they didn't fit into existing boxes way before covid and we now know that it's got a lot worse and at least it's something that we're all talking about now right um if you were born poor or if you lived poor, you were already suffering a poverty premium across every single utility, including insurance. Is open banking, open finance, open insurance going to do anything to address that? I think it needs to. Otherwise, there's no point doing it. And you can take that across every dimension of, of vulnerability. And if, you know, this, this review is saying financial resilience and financial health of UK citizens is the, the the important albeit important secondary reason why we're doing all of this in the Khalifa review that's still a hypothesis Adam isn't it it has to be proved so you have to build that in and that means that you you need to not just understand how businesses can do amazing things with technology and collaboration technically and otherwise you need to also understand what are the real issues that are stopping people our citizens our fellow citizens being financially resilient and healthy now and how is open finance open insurance going to solve those issues that's the important bit for me that's the angle that that i'm coming from we know a lot where a lot of the holes and the deficits are adam but what we don't know at the moment necessarily in detail is how open finance open insurance can actually materially help us to close those gaps and that's the thing that's really exciting the potential is there and, and, you know, I just worry always about how do we how do we make that really happen in, in practice? 
Sorry, I completely agree. Um, loving the passion there, Sean, as well. I think it's critical if if open banking or open finance isn't there for every single profile, um, rather than just those with disposable income, then, then actually we, we've probably failed as an industry. Um, and that is certainly coming. Um, you know, we can see there's lots of work being done right across um, kind of the debt management collections, vulnerability space when it comes to utilising those open banking principles um, across other markets um, as well. So, um, yeah, as I say, loving the passion and um, that's kind of completely in um, what should be the sweet spot for, for open finance. And as you say, um, you know, if we can't do that, then uh, we've probably got a bit of an issue. Um, so, OK, let's finish then with, uh, I guess, our hopes and dreams, a bit of a final thought um, in terms of looking at maybe an 18 month prediction, um, you know, when it comes to uh, open, you know, the open insurance market, um, you know, what might we see in innovation? What might you see in implementation, for example? Um, Louise, I'll come to you first. Uh, you've got a countdown style, 30 seconds, a virtual one. Um, and then we'll, uh, we'll we'll hand over to Sean. So, uh, Louise, over to you. Okay, well, I'm going to ignore the 18 month. My objective is that it fixes insurance for good. Mm-hmm. And from that, I'm thinking that comparison came along and it has provided customers with a way of comparing and uh, looking at what's in the market and getting transparency and helping them navigate a very complex, confusing uh, system. And I believe that open finance, when it's applied to insurance, is like a comparison on steroids. Mm-hmm. And I'm really excited to see um, what we can do with that. Amazing. Sean, a tough act to follow, unfortunately, but you're going second. I'll, uh, There's always a tough you. act to follow, yeah. please, Adam. There's no, there's no de- bloody change there. Um, and 30 seconds. He did that to stop me rambling on these. It wasn't to stop you. I wouldn't dream um, of it. Yeah, yeah, what else? Um, okay, so a real dream would be that as a result of the InsureTech board work um, on open finance, we get a conversation going with with established businesses and scale-ups, but also consumerists, particularly those um, who are expert in the issues of financial inclusion. And we actually get a project going. We're, we're looking to publish about June time, Adam. So we actually get a problem, a pro- project going, maybe Q3, Q4, supported by people like Innovate Finance and maybe some other people who have cash and expertise, and we actually do something. That would be a dream come true. Fantastic. No, looking forward to uh, looking forward to seeing how they materialise, um, and uh, yeah, very much looking forward to uh, the publishing the report as well. And hopefully, you'll both come back on um, when that's out, um, and we can uh, we, we can look at the content within it um, and how we push the industry on. So uh, many thanks, uh, Louise, and uh, many thanks, Sean. Thank you. Thanks so much. Great stuff. Thanks both for your hopes and dreams there. Um, Very much looking forward to seeing how they materialise. And of course, we'll be holding you both to account on both of those predictions. Um, Okay, so we're about out of time. Um, We've covered huge amounts of ground um, and you both have day jobs. So I'll relieve you of your podcast duties. Um, Thanks so much uh, to both Louise and Sean for joining us today. Um, And I very much look forward to sitting down again soon to run through the report that lands from Tech Nation a little later this year. So to Louise and Sean, thank you. 
And thanks again to our listeners for tuning in. If you enjoyed this podcast, you might also be interested in the recent Open Banking Expo TV episode with Saxo Bank's Chief Innovation Officer, um, where our consulting editor, Ellie Duncan, discusses the Danish investment bank's digital success to date. And they also take a deep dive into how they're keeping ahead of the innovation curve. One to watch for sure, and it can be streamed directly from openbankingexpo.com forward slash TV. Until next time, take care for now.